Welcome to the February 23rd, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, new clinical trial evidence that for patients with sickle cell anemia in resource-limited settings, both low- and moderate-dose hydroxyurea are effective for secondary stroke prevention. Up next, a research article showing how secreted mutant cow reticulin functions as a rogue cytokine in myeloproliferative neoplasms, acting in a paracrine manner to promote growth of nearby tumor cells. Finally, we'll review new research on the pathobiology of adult and pediatric Burkitt lymphoma. With the help of whole genome sequencing, investigators unraveled distinct subgroups, which may provide a new framework for epidemiology diagnosis and treatment of these lymphomas. Let's start with a research article entitled, Hydroxyurea for Secondary Stroke Prevention in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia in Nigeria, a Randomized Controlled Trial. The first author is Shehu Abdullahi of Bayero University and Aminu Kano Teaching Hospital in Kano, Nigeria. Stroke is a common and potentially catastrophic manifestation in patients with sickle cell anemia. By age 20, approximately 11% will have experienced a clinically overt stroke. Without secondary prevention, most experience stroke recurrence, mostly within three years of the initial stroke. The standard of care to prevent secondary strokes is exchange transfusion at the time of overt stroke, followed by chronic transfusion therapy. Transfusion goals are to keep hemoglobin above 9 grams per deciliter and the maximum hemoglobin S level at less than 30%. However, those recommendations are not easy to follow in sub-Saharan Africa, where the prevalence of sickle cell anemia is high. Besides the high costs of transfusions and chelation, patients have to contend with limited blood supplies and unsafe transfusion practices. ASH guidelines acknowledge that when transfusion is not an option for secondary stroke prevention, hydroxyurea therapy is an alternative, an inferior one, but better than nothing. That leads us to the study by Abdullahi and colleagues, who tested hydroxyurea as a treatment strategy for secondary stroke prevention in children with sickle cell anemia living in a low-resource setting. They conducted the trial at two hospitals in Nigeria, collectively representing more than 16,000 children with sickle cell anemia. The randomized, double-blind, superiority trial compared hydroxyurea at a low dose of 10 mg per kilogram per day, with a moderate dose of 20 mg per kilogram per day. A single-exchange transfusion was performed at the time of first overt stroke, and hydroxyurea was then started within 30 days of the stroke. Because of high costs and lack of availability of neuroimaging, children were assessed by a standardized neurological examination using the pediatric NIH stroke scale at the time of study entry. Patients were enrolled from January 2017 to May of 2019. The primary endpoint of the study was a composite of recurrent overt stroke, transient ischemic attack, or death. The hypothesis was that the moderate-dose hydroxyurea regimen would result in an 80% relative risk reduction in stroke or death versus the low-dose regimen. However, the study was stopped early due to a lack of significant difference in the incidence rates of the primary outcome measure between the low- and moderate-dose groups. This was after randomization of 101 participants, including 49 assigned to low-dose and 52 to moderate-dose hydroxyurea, and a median follow-up duration of 1.6 years. When considered separately, the rates of stroke and death were also no different. A total of five deaths were reported, two in the low and three in the moderate-dose group, and there were six recurrent strokes in the low-dose group and five in the moderate-dose group. 
By contrast, the recurrent stroke incidence rate was 29.1 per 100 person years in a previous pooled analysis of children with sickle cell anemia who did not receive any secondary stroke prevention. Thus, while the initial hypothesis was not confirmed, Abdullahi and co-authors said this is the first randomized control trial to demonstrate a benefit of initial hydroxyurea for secondary stroke prevention in children with sickle cell anemia. They conclude that initial low-dose hydroxyurea is, quote, a minimum known efficacious dose for secondary stroke prevention, unquote, for children with sickle cell anemia in low-income settings. And since low-dose hydroxyurea protected as well as a moderate dose, strokes could potentially be prevented in twice as many children if working with a fixed budget of available funds. However, in an accompanying commentary, Charles T. Quinn of Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Ohio asks, what about other outcomes? The trial looked at overt clinical neurological events and death, but not other acute and chronic complications of sickle cell anemia. For example, in an earlier study, these same researchers demonstrated that for primary stroke prophylaxis, low and moderate dose hydroxyurea were associated with similar rates of first stroke. However, moderate dose therapy led to fewer vaso-occlusive episodes and acute painful events. This deserves ongoing study, says Quinn. The cost-effectiveness argument for low-dose therapy might or might not hold up if moderate-dose therapy ameliorates the disease in other ways. Overcoming barriers to optimal care is not easy in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's been done in the setting of HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis. And people with sickle cell anemia deserve the same ongoing coordinated efforts and successes, Quinn concludes. The next research article is titled Secreted Mutant Cal Reticulans as Rogue Cytokines in Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, and the first author is Christian Paquet of the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research, Brussels, in Belgium. It's clear that mutations in the JAK2 kinase and the thrombopoietin receptor MIPL, also known as TPOR, drive the development of some BCR-able negative MPNs. Both stimulate cytokine-independent growth through the JAK-STAT pathway. However, the development of other MPNs can be driven by mutations in calreticulin, or CalR, an endoplasmic reticulum chaperone. Namely, frame-shifting mutations in exon 9 of the calreticulin gene are implicated in 20-30% of cases of essential thrombocythemia and primary myelofibrosis. How mutant CalR contributes to the development of MPNs has not been obvious. The mutation creates an altered C-terminal end tail in CalR that enables pathological activation of the thrombopoietin receptor. Complexes of mutant CalR and TPOR are transported to the cell surface, which in turn drives proliferation of hematopoietic cells' JAK-STAT pathway. Prior studies also showed that mutant CalR was found in a soluble form and could be detected in the plasma of patients with CalR-mutated MPNs. In the present study, Piquet and co-authors sought to determine whether the secreted mutant CalR acts in a paracrine and or autocrine manner to activate TPOR in adjacent cells, and if this so-called rogue cytokine effect would be relevant to the pathogenesis of myeloproliferative neoplasms. They began by showing that elevated levels of CalR mutant proteins could be detected in the plasma of MPN patients with CalR mutations. Soluble mutant CalR was present in 106 of 111 patients with mutated CalR, with a mean level of 25.64 nanograms per milliliter. Furthermore, levels correlated with allele mutational burden and disease status. Altogether, these results suggest that the MPN clones secrete mutant CalRs. Via immunoelectron microscopy, 
Investigators determined that mutant Kalar is present in Golgi apparatus and plasma membrane, indicating that Kalar mutants follow a secretory pathway. By contrast, wild-type Kalar was largely localized to the endoplasmic reticulum. The investigators produced recombinant mutant Kalar protein and found it had a half-life of just 30.72 minutes, about 10 times shorter than mutant Kalar isolated from the plasma of MPN patients. To look for an explanation, they immunoprecipitated CalR from plasma and analyzed co-precipitating proteins by mass spectrometry. The only protein detected in large amounts in patients but not controls was plasma-soluble transferrin receptor 1. Investigators believe that this protein may act as a carrier for plasma mutant CalR and increase its half-life. Additional studies showed that secreted mutant CalR acted in a rogue cytokine fashion to initiate increased JAK-STAT signaling and hyperproliferation of murine cells that expressed TPOR and mutant CalR. By contrast, no significant increases in cell proliferation were noted in cells that expressed only wild-type endogenous CalR. They also used a bioluminescence resonance energy transfer assay to show that soluble CalR mutant proteins produced in one cell can specifically interact in trans with thrombopoietin receptors on nearby cells. Finally, the researchers looked at the effects of recombinant mutant CalR protein on primary cells from MPN patients, finding that it enhanced the differentiation of megakaryocyte progenitors ex vivo. According to investigators, this is believed to be the first work demonstrating that circulating mutant CalR exerts a rogue cytokine effect on cells expressing the thrombopoietin receptor. They propose a model in which CalR-mutated cells secrete mutant CalR proteins that enhance activation of TPOR in nearby CalR-mutated cells in a paracrine manner. In a commentary, Johanna Mello-Cardenas and John Crispino of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, say this work provides exciting new insights into the pathogenesis of MPNs that harbor CalR mutations. The results also support targeting CalR as a therapeutic axis. They point to a recent study showing that an antibody targeting CalR mutant protein was able to decrease circulating platelet counts when administered to CalR mutant mice. And another recent study found that secreted CalR has immunosuppressive effects, providing further impetus to targeting the protein. However, important questions remain. For example, although plasma levels of CalR were linked to allele burden in this study, it's not clear how much this drives expansion of the tumor cell population. Nevertheless, the commentary authors conclude that this study is, quote, a major advance, unquote, in the understanding of how CalR mutations contribute to the development of myeloproliferative neoplasms. Finally, let's turn to a research article titled, Genetic Subgroups Inform on Pathobiology in Adult and Pediatric Burkitt Lymphoma. The first author is Nicole Thomas at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. Burkitt lymphoma is homogenous in ways that seemingly confound efforts at more detailed classification. Its genetic and nearly universal hallmark is a translocation that places the MYC gene under control of a strong enhancer, typically the immunoglobulin heavy or light chain. The karyotype of Burkitt lymphoma is usually simple, and the morphology consists of monotonous, medium-sized neoplastic cells and it is consistently responsive to intensive yet unsophisticated chemotherapy regimens. Hence, classification of Burkitt lymphoma has historically been based on epidemiology rather than biology. Burkitt has historically been subdivided into endemic, sporadic, and immunodeficiency-associated variants. 
Patients are further separated by age into pediatric and adult subgroups. Certainly, Epstein-Barr virus status is becoming more accepted as biologically relevant, given the striking association between EBV infection and endemic Burkitt lymphoma. But otherwise, there is a dearth of insight into disease-related molecular features that would further subgroup patients to guide treatment choice or predict patient clinical outcomes. This approach has been helpful in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, where research efforts have yielded robust genetic subgroups, opening up possibilities for precision treatment. In Burkitt lymphoma, a similar ability to classify patients could help uncover new possibilities to replace cytotoxic agents with more targeted therapy. In the present study, Thomas and colleagues sought to identify shared and distinguishing genetic and molecular features of both adult and pediatric Burkitt lymphoma. They looked at cases accrued from Uganda, the United States, Brazil, France, Germany, and Canada. They analyzed data for 230 Burkitt lymphomas for which whole genome sequencing was done and compared those findings to genomes of 295 diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. They identified simple somatic mutations, copy number, and structural variations, and aberrant somatic hypermutations that allowed for identification of novel genetic subgroups using a consensus clustering algorithm. As part of this work, Thomas and co-authors identified other significantly mutated genes, including additional genetic features associated with tumor EBV status. These genes were largely ones that had been previously identified as associated with Burkitt lymphoma, further supporting the involvement of SYN3A, USP7, HIST1H1E, CHD8, and RFX7. Most of the significantly mutated genes that were newly identified including TET2, BRAF, and EZH2, were infrequently found and occurred at rates that were similar or higher in diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. Analysis of mutational signatures in the Burkitt and diffuse large B-cell lymphomas revealed six genetic subgroups that spanned adult and pediatric populations. Three of the subgroups were dominated by Burkitt lymphoma genomes. These subgroups were named based on their characteristic features and were termed DGGBL, with DGG standing for DDX3X, GNA13, and GNA12, ICBL, where the IC refers to ID3 and CCND3, and Q53BL, with Q53 standing for quiet TP53. These subgroups illustrate various genomic pathways that allow Burkitt lymphoma cells to overcome vulnerability to cell death under the common MIC-driven cell growth program. Each subgroup also had EBV-positive as well as EBV-negative tumors, meaning that the clusters highlighted distinct tumor biology, as opposed to being reflective of EBV status. Differences in overall survival were not significant between Burkitt lymphoma genetic subgroups. However, in pediatric Burkitt lymphoma, the DGGBL subgrouping was associated with the most inferior outcomes. And in adult Burkitt lymphoma, the most significant differences in outcomes were seen when ID3 and TP53 mutations were used as single-gene approximations for the ICBL and Q53BL subtypes, respectively. In a commentary, Adam Olszewski of Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, said the present study does not paint an easily interpretable picture of prognostic relevance for the identified genetic subgroupings of Burkitt lymphoma. Nevertheless, Olszewski says, the findings provide a hint that sequencing data could add value to prognostic calculations, as evidenced by the prognostic disadvantage for adult Burkitt lymphoma carrying TP53 mutations. In addition, it remains an intriguing possibility that genetically defined Burkitt lymphoma subgroups might exhibit differences in their susceptibility to PI3 kinase signaling inhibition or immunomodulatory therapy. 
Future studies should include more cases of disseminated extranodal Burkitt lymphoma, which carry a poorer prognosis. And the next critical step, Olszewski concludes, would be analysis of prospectively collected samples from patients treated uniformly in the context of a clinical trial. That would help to examine the practical relevance of these subgroups and the prognostic impact of specific genomic alterations in Burkitt lymphoma. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.